0: Coming up on today's BMW Motorrad Ride and Talk podcast, sitting down with Edgar Heinrich, head of design at BMW Motorrad. Take a listen. Over the years, I've had the privilege of riding BMW motorcycles all over the world. And the one thing I've come away with is that the only thing more extraordinary than the ride are the people you meet along the way. These are their stories. My name is Sean Thomas, and this is BMW Motorrad's Ride and Talk.
1: Yeah, and when when I, when I joined, in, that was like 80, 87, I think, there were three designers and design was a bit different and quite a lot different from what it was now. Basically, it was pretty much engineer, engineering ruled, but, but slowly, slowly things came. I mean, yeah. we, the company understood that it had to transform also. Looking
0: back at the last 30 years, it's hard to think of anyone who has had a larger influence on what we see as BMW Motorrad than Edgar Heinrich. A designer with a vision, Edgar has brought to us the modern look and feel of several iconic BMW motorcycle models. During our interview, I was stricken with Edgar's knowledge and passion, but most of all, the humility of a man who began with a simple love of design and motorcycles and shaped this into what has become a legacy of tenacity, perseverance, and success. So there's something I saw the other day. I was watching uh, the video of BMW and Marshall amplifiers, and the collaboration that they're doing for the R18.
1: And
0: I, I saw something I didn't know about you, which is that you play the bass guitar.
1: <laughs> oh, well, the, uh, don't remind me on this one. That was really embarrassing because I hadn't touched a, a bass guitar. Literally, this is no joke. I didn't practice. I didn't. T- they didn't tell me. I I didn't touch a bass guitar for. 10, 12 years. Wow. Because I, I used to play in a band for very long, for like tw- 20 years or something. Yeah. And I went, when I went to India, I quit the band, obviously. Yeah. And so I didn't play any, anymore. And when coming back to meet the Marshall guys, yeah. Adam... Uh, they I mean they handed me the bass guitar and they do something. It was so embarrassing. Uh, at least I should have practiced before you yeah know, at the least bass. they captured
0: it on camera for all yeah, eternity. that's yeah, good yeah. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well I played drums for about as long as you played bass and I probably haven't played the drums for as long as you haven't played yeah. the bass and and I was watching that going if, if I was in that room and they made me play I would
1: be terrible. Yeah, it is a practice that must be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, after a while you get in, but but if you're completely fresh and haven't touched a, a guitar for twelve years, it's poor. Oh. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. Creativity,
0: you know, playing music of course is something that we do to express creativity, but reading about you, you. Even from a very young age, you were always doodling and drawing. I think you mentioned once that your mom has like books and books full of drawings that you did.
1: How did that all get started for you? I mean, somehow it came quite naturally. Obviously, you know, when you're, I always was doodling. I mean, when when I was a kid, you know, we started with these cards with cars on and bikes on, and you yeah. know, these these quartets we called it. And I did it myself when I was a kid. You know, I made my own cards with, and I drew th- these cars yeah. with like six hundred horsepower and like <sighs> acceleration like this and high sp- top speed like that. Yeah, as a young boy would do. You know, yeah, you you, you draw your own dreams, and this always went on. And uh, when I was in school, I the, the, the subject changes. You do something to, whatever, to impress the chicks or to cool (laughs) stuff or whatever. Yeah. And at some point you found out that um, we had to do some, you had to do some uh, work for for school, for the teachers. And instead of, sometimes instead of doing some writing work, uh, I did, uh, I drew some uh, scenery for the theaters, for example. Yeah. And that was much easier for me to do these drawings than instead of making a, 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 a big writing. Hmm. So you find out it's, it's quite comfortable. If, if, if it's easy for you to draw and express with drawing, uh, you find out that it's an easy way to get along with. Yeah, And uh,
0: yeah, this is how it came. And around was- the same time too, when you were a kid, you, you had motorcycles in your life. Yeah. You mentioned that you guys used to take old bikes and go running them around the back country.
1: I mean, it was. <clears throat> I had two elder brothers, and they had friends obviously with bikes. Yeah. We grew up in the countryside in a village in Bavaria, you know. Yeah. And for us, it was totally normal to ride around, to roam around in the, in the countryside on, on motorbikes or on yeah. old cars. And I, I think this is something, if you look at it in retrospective, for us young guys on the countryside, growing up in the countryside, Nowadays it it sounds so ridiculous, somehow so boring, but for us this was real freedom, you know, because we were locked in the village. Yeah, I mean, we had one car in the family, and the dad took it to go to work. Mm. So you were locked there. Either you go on the on the on the bicycle, yeah. but then it didn't go so far, or you had one of these escape vehicles. Yeah, and we always had this. We we tinkered around it. It came quite naturally. Mm. Uh, we had we we inherited an old car from my auntie, you know a small fiat 600 and we we made a convertible out of it and we took double tires on the back so we could roam the fields and uh, we made a cool exhaust pipe you know all these stupid things but this is how I grew up and yeah. and always things broke down and you had to repair it you yeah. couldn't you couldn't uh, afford a a craftsman or something yeah. So we did it by by ourselves, and so you, you learn by doing.
0: Now, even today, you have mentioned that you like to spend time in your garage repairing, restoring motorcycles. Do, do you feel that that has just come as a natural extension from your childhood and sort of being forced to work on bikes to keep them running so
1: you could explore? I'm quite sure about this. I, I think when you grow up like this, what I just explained, it's very natural yeah. Uh, it's not only about bikes when I was uh, young I, along with my brother and also my dad we tried to fix everything I mean it might be the the, the washing machine or the the iron of mm-hmm. mom's iron or the whatever whatever it was or yeah. repairing some tiles or building a garage or doing everything you know and that's that's this is how I I and, and we grew up in, in those days, in the 70s, 80s. And this is why I like to talk about semantics and mechanics. Mechanics is something you can you can see and you can feel mm. by the gut somehow. You have this alligator brain, yeah. you see something like which works with levers and hinges and this kind of stuff and wires and you look at it and you see it yeah. and you see if something is broken. Mm. This is different with electronics, obviously. Sure. iPhone is something very different. I can't, you can't, yeah, I mean, I can't do anything with it. But uh, this mechanical things and the semantics are always around us. And this is uh, what I understand. You you slowly grow into it. Yeah. And bikes is kind of the same thing. You see, you see a bike is basically built from mechanical things. Mm. I, I just love to do this, yeah. and I just—it's—it's it's somehow very natural, and I like to do it. And if I if I can't do it for some while, I, I I start missing it.
0: Yeah, take me back to design. You're you're doodling a lot going through school. You're finding that you're a very visual person and and like to create uh, drawings and and how did this ultimately translate to making the decision to get a, a formal education in design?
1: <clears throat> I I think I was. I was not the best student, or so, so to say. I was not mm. so massively dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you always try to find a workaround somehow. But then, uh, when I finished high school, you have to make a decision to do something. Mm. And I didn't. I didn't really plan a lot for this. Yeah. So it became quite natural. I went to to a town where my brother had a flat because he was uh, in in, uh, in university there. Yeah. And they had a, a course for architecture and I thought that that could be something for me because architecture is quite nice and you can draw and a little bit of technology is also in, involved. And I thought that could be something for me. So I went to Rosenheim and uh, started my architecture university, which was quite okay. But then I, I, I know there's sometimes there is these points in life that changes direction yeah. uh, and not uh, not really planned for it mm. but there was a we i think i remember we had this this lesson we stood in the field and we had to draw a farmhouse mm. you know with trees and all these cows and stuff and buildings and at this point my professor came up to me and he said now, what are you actually doing here uh, and i think you should not be here what? That was pretty strange. I mean, this is something that is a bit shaking in the first moment. Yeah. I didn't think, what what does it mean? I mean, is is my drawing so bad or what is it? Mm. And I talked to him in the evening then. And he advised me, maybe I should try something else, use my talents and stuff. Okay. So what I did is I, I finished my lesson. I finished my year. And then I looked around in Munich and checked out all the different schools which were there. And this is how I encountered design, industrial mm. design. I didn't know about this before. Mm. And there was this school in Munich and you, you see all these drawings of people and they they draw some some devices or household goods or whatsoever machines. And then they did models out of it. Mm. And that was something I thought, man, this, this could be something for me because tinkering was always my thing and yeah. drawing was my thing. Yeah. So I thought, this could be something for me yeah sure so i made my entrance how to say test you had to do drawings and stuff yeah for two days and i passed it and so this is how i came to industrial design wow yeah that that was the beginning basically Mm -hmm. of my professional career (laughs) recently i had a chance to sit down with design students
0: from a design school in in california in petaluma and they were designing the future of motorcycles what was fascinating to me is these students were drawing out motorcycles, but it was really clear that they didn't really understand mechanically how a motorcycle functions. They were giving us the design and putting the pieces in their traditional places. You know, the tires were in the, where you'd expect them to be in the wheels and the handlebars in the seat. But beyond that, they were these really wild outcroppings that if you have any mechanical mind, you'd probably think, I don't think that this can really exist in the real world, but it is cool. It makes me wonder: Do you find that to be the case today? Is there a designer and an engineer, and the two are not the same, or is it pretty common to have people that understand mechanics of a motorcycle as well as design?
1: Uh, good question. Um, on the one hand, probably I'm a little bit of a dinosaur mm. uh, because I come, I come actually from a from a world what I just described, which is pretty much addicted by mobility Mm. i mean i love these bikes and cars and all this kind of stuff Uh, not necessarily uh, combustion engines also electric whatsoever but uh, the mobility itself i think uh, this is something it's very much inherited it's kind of very it's something which comes very deep to Mm. mankind mobility is quite important and where i come from this how it how it grew up into mobility somehow Um, and this is my style i think mechanics is always a part of the whole thing but not on everything and for me it's kind of connected and in this company i think it's also comes very natural because most of these people or almost everybody in this motorbike company is a motorbike freak hmm. in one or the other way one some are off-road guys and some yeah. are restoring and some are racist and whatsoever but they're all kind of driven by the love for bikes and by the passion and emotion hmm. which is inherent there. that does not necessarily say and we also encounter this very often that we get uh, applications or from from students or from people i look at these drawings and i think wow this guy has no clue about motorbike yeah but i also learned that this is not necessarily so important mm. because very often it brings you off onto new ideas or yeah. how to reevaluate given facts mm. can be very useful and or valuable i imagine that has to be important now as
0: we start to progress into electric motorcycles and some of the traditional placements of parts on bikes are are no longer necessary where they are. So it must be nice to have somebody that doesn't look at it conventionally and say, oh yeah, I guess we could put what used to be the fuel tank can go away and we can put something there we never thought of.
1: That's exactly the point what I want to say. Uh, If you look at electric mobility now, the the cars are very new. I mean it's like a, a white sheet of paper. Yeah. If you look at the that's my my comparison if you look at the 20s or 30s from the 19th, 20th century when the the com, how to say the normal the conventional the, the 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 engine how to say the combustion engine motorbikes were were developed from the 1920s 20, 1930s if you look at these bikes there is numerous ideas or ways to make suspension hmm. or to make braking devices mm-hmm. or make ignition devices or how to have a, a engine connected to a gearbox there is diff- very different ways and this is super interesting if you look at these bikes nowadays this is all lost nobody knows it yes. if you go in a museum it's super inspiring ah. and exactly this we find in uh, electromobility now we think a fork has to look like a fork because all the forks look like that. Yeah, but that's not the case. I mean, you can really explore now again. Yeah, not the fork, maybe, but but the the, the engine setup, the battery setup, the whatever. How how to rearrange all the different components on a on a bike?
0: We can see this, I think, on components now that we don't think of as being that strange but at the time when they came out they were very strange i mean i just look at a swing arm a single swing arm rear suspension on a bike which now most of the bikes that i ride have that but there had to be a time when that first came out and people said there's no way that can
1: hold up there's no way that that bike is going to be durable with this thing yeah definitely very often i mean if you look at this image from whatever 1940 or something i don't know exactly when it was it had like one, how do you say, one tube at the front and one in the rear. Yeah. It looked totally strange. It looks strange when you look at it now. Yeah. But it worked. And now we have all these monolevers and they work perfectly. Yeah. And we also certainly have to take
0: into consideration is like, what can the consumer expect to accept as a leap in design? Yeah. Because even if functionality is there, if it's too out of whack,
1: is it going to be accepted by the public? I, I think it depends a lot because um, you, you have very different kind of customers i mean we have this you have these sophisticated innovative guys Mm -hmm. and then you have these conservative guys and then you have some everything in between the middle and it's definitely not easy for us as a manufacturer which has a very wide portfolio i mean we have from from an R 18 from very how do you say traditional bikes Mm. to super modern bikes like an electric scooter and and, and race bikes in between and touring bikes in between and off-road bikes in between we have a very wide portfolio and very different multiple customers obviously and to satisfy all their needs is there is a certain strategy behind it Mm. Um, and i think we're doing pretty okay pretty good (laughs) Uh, it seems to work out quite good it's right. It's You have to adjust to the customer needs, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, you finish
0: your uh, tenure through industrial design and somewhere along the line, you join BMW. Did you start straight with motorcycles?
1: Yeah, when I did my thesis work in this school, what you mentioned before, it was very clear that I, did, I want to build a motorbike. Yeah. I want to design a motorbike. And my idea was very naive somehow from nowadays looking back. <laughs> My idea was I build a one to one motorbike because this is much more impressive than all these small little one to four model scale models. Mm. Uh, I mean, guys did it before, but one to four scale model looks a bit like a toy. You know? mm. And I wanted to have a one to one motorbike. You want? I wanted to sit on it, and it and the spring had to work. Mm. That was my target. And I thought, again, very naive. I ask some of these manufacturers; they should support me with either money or parts. Yeah then it's less work you know Sure. and the only company which uh came back to me was bmw <laughs> which was not so cool because bmw was not very cool in yeah. those days um I, I wrote suzuki's in those days <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i had to work with bmw which was a pity because uh, and then the way out was man i do a, a bmw for young guys you know mm. because these BMWs in the in in the in eighties the they looked yeah pretty much for old men, not very cool.
0: <laughs> and this was a critical time too because the eighties we had the what is now the modern superbike or sport bikes you know like like the Suzuki Katana yeah exactly and GSXRs and CBRs and Honda Hurricanes and what did BMW have we had the exactly.
1: You know, what we didn't the have that. They had. I mean, the K100 just came out, mm-hmm. and then they had these old boxes. I mean, there was not really cool bikes, no. at least not for young guys. So the way out was to do a, a motorbike for young guys. So I, I welded me a frame back home in the garage and, and put all this foam on and and plaster and stuff. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it it worked out that it was way much more more work than a scale model. Then, but okay, <laughs> anyway. But uh, at least I could um, present it at BMW, yeah. and obviously they were a, a little bit impressed or whatever, and they offered me a job. So And I thought, Man, I don't want to work at BMW, but probably I have to <laughs> because I needed money.
0: <laughs> and they're the only ones offering uh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was it, actually. This is how it worked out. Yeah, and this is your home, too. You were still living in this area, and so coming here probably was an yeah. easy transition.
1: Yeah, it wasn't easy, but I think we changed quite a bit yeah. uh, in the perception. Yeah. So when you came on here
0: at first, um, mo- most people that I've met that started at BMW started as an intern and worked their way up. And but it sounds like you went straight into industrial design here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And when when I when I joined, in, that was like eighty eighty seven, I think. Mm. Uh, there were there were three designers. Wow. That was pretty small. I mean. And design was a bit different, and of quite a lot different from what it was now. Yeah. Uh, basically, it was pretty much engineering ruled. There was the time in the eighties. I mean, BMW bikes they were not very cool, but they were extremely reliable. Yeah. Every brand had its own USP, so to speak. Mm. I mean, Ducatis they or the Italians, let's say the Italians they look cool, but they didn't have electric. Yeah. And and the the British bikes. They were okay, but they leaked oil. Like And, and Harleys, they, they lost screws. I mean, yeah. it, that was the typical thing in those days. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to have a reliable bike, you go for a BMW. It doesn't look cool, but it's reliable. Sure. And, and your goal was to make it look cool as well. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I needed a job. And, <laughs> <laughs> and in those days, AI was a bit... But, but slowly, slowly, things came. I mean, yeah. we, the company understood that it had to transform also, yeah. because the other companies also transformed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you know this, I mean, a is reliable now and the yeah. Triumph doesn't leak oil anymore and right. Italians have electronics now. Yeah, So BMW has to look cool also.
0: Yeah, sure. So from those days in the eighties, when you started on, do you have any memorable
1: first projects that you can share with us? What, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, the first things what you start when you're a young designer, I mean, you do some, some accessories or mm-hmm. you do a a little facelift. Sure. First work was facelift of the K100. The seat. I remember this Aha. one. Ah, <laughs> okay. It's quite. Uh, in retrospective, it's quite funny somehow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you make like 30 drawings for a different handle for, of a passenger of a pillion seat. You know. Yeah. But yeah, as a as a young rookie, of course, you try to impress people, and this is somehow it worked out. I don't know. Yeah, and then the the tasks they grew up a bit. Yeah, and what was probably the first really big thing was the uh, was the R eleven hundred RS. which was the the four valve four valve uh, boxer engine in the very first bike with a four valve. Yeah, it was the first uh, yeah. bike with a four valve. Yeah, and that was so to speak interesting because. For for the company, it was a very important bike because this bike had to deliver the business turnover. Basically, uh, um, BMW was about to abolish the bike business because it was not so uh, it it didn't work out money wise, and this bike was the last attempt to to make the business work with bikes. You know, at the time and and
0: even now, when I speak to purists, um, they consider the RS the purist's bike it's the bike that if you love BMW it gives you everything that you would want on the street and that, and that RS in particular started to signal to me a big change because the look of the bike the design it looked like it had a taut skin over a muscular animal that's always what i thought of when i looked at that and the bikes that came after it like the K1200RS for example and the K1200S they were always these designs are very uh, almost organic and their their look and feel was this part of your influence i
1: don't know probably yeah because i mean i did the design of the art 1100rs the first one Mm -hmm. and if i look at it now i'm not very how to say i'm not super proud on it (laughs) but it was at least my first attempt to change things a little bit yeah and it was Let's say it was for this reason, it was important because it gave me quite a bit of self-confidence. Yeah. Because there were, I, I just said, it was an important bike for the company. And they hired like, I think it was four external uh, designers to make the design, to put in their design. Yeah. Uh, but they were all canceled and they took my design. What? And I was the rookie in those days. So yeah. I, I was quite proud on this one <laughs> that I made it. Yeah. Uh, i don't say the bike is super nice or super perfect or whatsoever but at least it gave me a bit of confidence yeah and so for the next steps i really tried to push a bit more Yeah. Uh, bikes like the r1100s for example mm. or specifically the k1200r mm. they they were bikes who, not, who were not ordered like that yeah and but i just was a bit progr- wanted to be a bit progressive and and i put these thing in the, in the arena and they picked it actually. That was quite, on the one hand, important for the company because these really changed a little bit the perception of BMW design, let's yeah. say. They were quite, especially the k twelve hundred r that was quite uh, outstanding, first of all. It was, was the, the strongest roadster in those days mm. and it had a pretty excessive and bold design ah. statement. <clears throat> I remember that was pretty, pretty interesting because – the British magazine, the MCN, you know, they yeah. usually didn't take notice of BMW. That was yeah. not so cool. But this bike was on the cover page. Wow! And the MCN they said ah, BMW goes mad or something like that. <laughs> and that was for us. That was like wow. We opened a bottle of wine or champagne, you know, for this for this headline. <laughs> So was kind of feeling
0: like, boy, now we made it. eh?" It was an interesting transition too with the K1200R because it seemed like the design of the bikes started to shift from that sort of organic skin on a machine look to a more angular, sharper look. You know, we saw bikes like the new RT come out, the the, uh, facelifted 1200 GS at the time. It started to get sharper angles, more utilitarian look. Things that we start seeing carry on even to today where we see some of those angles um, represented in things like the CE04. How does these design changes and how they affect the character of the model line decided? Where where do you... Is this something that you are thinking of well ahead of time, or is it something that just happens
1: spontaneously? It's probably a, a combination of both. On the one hand, what I feel... I realized this only very many years later, but when you're constantly working in workshops working together with uh, with people who have the same mindset and mm. they're always talking about motorbikes and what could be and how we should do it and they're always criticizing what you're doing. I mean criticizing in a sense of if you do something wrong, your friends will tell you in the evening in, in the workshop, mm. hey, what did you do here? That's not good. How you should, why didn't you do it this way? Yeah. Or why did you do this? And, and you are permanently, oh, because we had to, because of whatever money or economics or whatsoever. Yeah. So you're constantly under stress, positive stress, let's put it this way, yeah. because you're permanently living in this uh, culture, in this bike culture. So you're permanently alert of what is the latest stuff and what could be good and what could be interesting and what people like or dislike. So this is one thing. So this permanent—I miss the English word—you're <laughs> permanently stressed by by the environment, mm. the bike environment. So this is one thing, and on the other hand, it's sometimes very spontaneous, yeah, because you see things and you think, "Oh, we could do it this way. Why didn't we do it this way?" Yeah, and then uh, the third thing is probably also you're you're in a what I call a, a parallel universe. You're always four or five years ahead of which is out there on the markets. Mm -hmm. which is out there on the streets, is totally old and old-fashioned for us. Yeah. Because we have always four or five years ahead of the existing bikes. When I look back at some of the designs
0: from the 90s to the 2000s, I wonder how much of the design had to be compromised just based on available technology. I mean, something as simple as the shape and style of a headlight on a bike You know, are you able to have a wide breadth in which you can choose from in order to achieve the look you want? Or are you working with a manufacturer that says, these are the sizes and shapes we have available and you just have to make it work?
1: This is things, a subject which changed a lot. If you go back to the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it was a lot like this. Mm. Uh, You have to have your, uh, you have the components you have. They are whatever available or they are cheap or uh, make a business case then sometimes you have to work for it yeah. and if you develop new things it's more costly obviously it yeah. takes longer time but uh, it's there's also changes uh, chances in it if you look at the r1150gs mm-hmm. you know the facelift of the four valve boxer yeah. gs it introduced this asymmetric headlight right and this was a, a component which was available yeah. And there were not so many components available would, which would fit the package. Right. Uh, although, uh, Because we had this uh, squarish lamp, which I didn't like, uh, and I wanted yeah. to have something else. So they gave us this component. You have to work with it. Yeah. And so we tr- we said, yeah, why not doing it? First, it fits the package. It's yeah. lighter than the, pre- the previous one. It's more uh, performing yeah. than the previous one. So this is why we, we got along with it. Yeah. And this is something... Uh, I always say I'm not afraid of asymmetric things for example yeah. if they are maybe either interesting looking or they are uh, technically superior yeah which is very often the case I mean we have numerous uh, uh examples for this yeah absolutely and at the end of the day it it made a a very iconic feature out yeah. of BMW
0: yeah it started out as something where it, I'm sure people scratch their heads and say why are they doing this and now you can trace things as simple as the asymmetric headlight to so many different models that BMW has presented since then.
1: I think you, you have to you have to dare once in a while. You have to dare something, which is a little bit uh, awkward in the beginning, but yeah. it turns into something interesting. Maybe, yeah. Uh, not always mainstream is not always the best thing.
0: Yeah. Who? What is the SAS tagline? He who dares wins. I believe. <laughs> I think that, it, that applies differently to them. But if there was a model. Of motorcycle in your time here that you would hang your hat on and say this is the one I'm most proud of. Could you name a bike?
1: Mm.
0: It's difficult.
1: Mm. Probably one of one of the bikes I really like is what we just mentioned the K the K 1200R mm. that was really a a little bit of a game changer I would say. Yeah. Also, like um, what's also a game changer was the 1200 GS the yeah. the air cooled one and then the Definitely the s 1000 R. that was definitely uh, something which, again, a game-changer. And that one in particular was such a game-changer because that
0: world was really well-established. There were people making bikes that were the leaders in that segment, and nobody, including me, expected the RR to be able to seriously compete in that world, and yet it did. And now it's considered one of the top in that world. And that, that takes me back to when you first started here saying, I want to make a cool bike, you know, that young people can ride. And that's really what you got with that bike, isn't it? Because suddenly you have people going to the dealers that are 20 years younger than the yeah, average yeah, customer.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, like I said, we, we we expanded our portfolio a lot, especially the like the Double R. Yeah. That's definitely one a bike which is for younger persons, for younger people, uh, but also bikes like the CEO4, for example. Yeah. That's also new customer types. But all these bikes uh, with a super emotional uh, appearance, you know.
0: Mm. BMW put out an ad campaign for the RR, and they showed a designer designing what they wanted the front of the RR to look like. And they designed it, and they didn't like it, and they tore the page in half. And then they designed a new design, and they didn't like it, and they tore it in half. And then the head of design came in and saw two separate images put together side by side of two separate pictures of the bike, with now with asymmetrical headlights and said, yep, that's a great idea. That's what we're going to do. How close to the truth is
1: that really? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the, the the basic reason for this asymmetric headlight was uh, it was quite simple. When we did this bike, we checked multiple layouts in terms of frame and engine and all this thing because we wanted to do our own thing. and We didn't want to, to make the same layout like all the competitors did. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we found out that the performance gap is so narrow mm-hmm. in this area that you you just have to basically get the same layout. Mm-hmm. But then it, it comes a lot to weight also. Yeah. And the weight is very important because it pays in to performance. So we tried all these little uh, chances we could we could find weight. And one of these chances was the, the headlight. Mm-hmm. Because you have a high beam and a low beam, obviously, Yeah, usually on both sides of the bike and the high beam you can make smaller and lighter uh, if you reduce the size because the technical thing is requirement is different from the high beam and the low beam right so we reduced the size of the high beam in order to gain i think it was 130 grams or something like that if i if i'm right and it was just it just gave us an an advantage in terms of weight the same with these with these gills on the side you know yeah because if a fan on one side and the other side you don't have a fan. Yeah. So again here are some grams here some grams there. You end up with a asymmetric light. But okay, whatsoever if it if it helps uh, increasing the performance, we go for it. Yeah. It has to be fascinating to get to see
0: things that are happening on the car side here and all of the technology that they are pushing the limits with, and then look at those things and go, I might be able to incorporate that into these bikes. LED lights, for example, which for a long time just didn't exist anywhere. And now we're really seeing them incorporated.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's quite natural. You have new technology and you try to get the new technology in. Of course, it's lighter. It's, uh, it consumes less uh, electricity. Yeah. So it's just, how do you say, the normal way of evolution in technology.
0: I remember in 2004 model year, I think it was, the R1100S replica had carbon fiber valve cover protectors. And at the time, carbon fiber was cutting edge. like Nobody was using it. And BMW found a way to incorporate it. And then we saw it again, I think, in 2008 with the HP2 Sport, the carbon fiber valve covers, again, at a Mm -hmm. time when not only was carbon fiber not being used often, but it wasn't readily available because all of these manufacturers of airplanes were using it to lighten the load. And of course, now carbon fiber is just a readily available thing that we see going. Is there other technologies that you see like at this moment are really cutting edge that have been recently incorporated into a
1: production bike? I think this is something which is constantly happening, anyway. Yeah, I mean, in in those days, the carbon fiber was extremely expensive. That's right. But then bikes like HP Two Sport, I was—I mean, it was really <laughs> super. I think it was twenty-nine thousand bucks or something like yeah. those days. Now it's even more. Uh, but I mean, you can afford it in those in those bikes, obviously. Yeah. And uh, we incorporate lots of stuff like in our high price bikes, like the M bikes, for example. Yeah. Uh, of course, there is cutting-edge technology. Mm-hmm. You have a Megamoto in your garage. Do you still? I have an HP Enduro. Yeah. The Megamoto I recently had, but I sold it off to a friend because it was just standing there for years. And- <laughs> <laughs> now, there's people listening to this podcast right now that are
0: raising their hand because they want me to ask you, Can BMW make another HP2? Because that was—I mean—that really was an amazing bike for its time. Oh, this is the first time I hear this question.
1: Really? (laughs) Come on! I mean, everybody is constantly, (laughs) constantly asking me, "Hey, how about this? (laughs) How we do a HP2?" And uh, yeah, (laughs) it's it's a super interesting question, especially. I mean, you have to say that is like uh, some few thousand motorbike enthusiasts here, yeah, and probably. I don't know. At least half, or even more of half, they are GS freaks. Yeah, and True. I know s- there's so many people who who own HP2s here. Yeah, and and the rest wants to have one. Yeah, in the US, they're worth way more than they were new. Yeah,
0: and they were not cheap new. The same yeah. Yeah. It's, they're hugely popular and they people say, but we also hear that about the K-75. And there's another group of people going, can you bring back the K-75? Okay. I'm not so sure about the K-75. <laughs> it had its day yeah. and they're still out there. So uh, folks, if you want one, you can find one. It's <laughs> a really good time sitting down and talking with you, Edgar. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> Most welcome. I'm not quite sure who is interested in this. Somebody will hear the end here. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, there's going to be a lot of people listening. i very happy that you okay. sat down with us.
0: So thank you. Okay. Thank uh, you, Sean. Rock on. We very much hope you have enjoyed this episode. We want to hear from you. So please rate, comment, and share your thoughts about this podcast. We have many more episodes on the way. So please subscribe, Follow along and share your requests for future episodes of the BMW Motorrad Ride & Talk podcast.